You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast, uh, special medieval edition. Uh, even though this is our what twentieth of these that we've recorded so far, uh, I still haven't come up with the name for them, and none of them have dropped. So maybe it doesn't matter that we don't have a name. Medieval times—that's what I was defaulting to, uh, <laughs> just because I, I appreciate the restaurant. Um, uh, joining us today, uh, we have uh, laughing in the background, uh, David Grubbs, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University uh, in Houston, Texas. Uh, David, how are things down south? Um, oh golly, uh, just frantic, time's winged chariot hurries at our back, semester's end approaches the, you know, academic apocalypse, Right. the year, the year, the semesterly academic apocalypse, you know, they're all coming to terms with their academic mortality and that they have to give an account for the deeds done in the body. Yeah, we're, uh, there, there's a point every semester, I'm sure I've said this on the, on the show before, but there's a point every semester when the student comes and. Like, Dr. Neil, Dr. Neil, how can I get my A? And I'm like, witchcraft? I mean... <laughs> a time machine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some some form of necromancy, I guess. I, I don't know exactly. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Um, also joining us today, uh, and presumably not engaging in witchcraft, is uh, Jordan Poss, uh, instructor of history at uh, Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood, South Carolina. Jordan, how are you doing? I am good, and I take the good, staunch... Latin Christian line on witchcraft that Dante takes, which is that witchcraft is not real, it is fraud. And therefore, deserving or not deserving deserving of burning at the stake? Uh, we can cross that bridge when we come to it. But that, that's, that is a, uh, the burning at the stake thing is, uh, is um, well, well, we can deal with that stereotype later. Yeah, that's not so much a medieval thing, right? My, my understanding no, is that's like is, a renaissance and... Yeah, like, it, it is a, a modern phenomenon uh, in, in the in the periodic sense of the modern world right it was all about like weighing and ducks back in the middle ages <laughs> yeah from that documentary i watched that one time yeah <laughs> i actually showed my students a video on magna carta this week uh narrated by terry jones and i had a very hard time not hearing sir bedivere <laughs> uh, well uh, uh we're talking today about someone who didn't make it into Monty Python, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, talking about the Emperor Maurice, uh, one of the Byzantine emperors, uh, and his uh, his work, the Strategicon, or at least uh, what is partially assumed to be his work, as as is so often the case. There are all sorts of source questions, and how much of this was actually from the emperor, how much of this was uh, was uh, really written by the emperor versus written by, you know, uh, interns and research assistants and all of the things that. <laughs> Uh, we, we know how academia works. Um, written at, yeah, written at the behest of the emperor. Right. Uh, he signed his name to it and got all the credit uh, and <laughs> gave them uh, 
I don't know, a stipend, uh, a semesterly stipend. Uh, 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 Maurice, uh, he's an, an interesting emperor that I, uh, I I know very little about Byzantium. One of the reasons I wanted to do this series of podcasts is, is because I know little about the Middle Ages, but also I know very little about the Byzantine Empire, and I think this is a way to sort of puff that up a little bit. Uh, from what I understand, he is one of the, the best of the Byzantine emperors. Uh, so he reigns from the uh, the end of the uh, the sixth century into the first couple of years of the seventh century. So I forget the exact date. It's like 580 to 602 or something like that. Uh, is uh, by all accounts a uh, a solid general, uh, a really highly competent military mind. Uh, so it's appropriate that he has this book on military strategy. Uh, he uh, settled uh, a war that had been ongoing with Persia. Uh, for a long time. I mean, Rome and Persia are kind of always at each other's throats. Uh, he he brings that to an end uh, and ends it in victory for Rome uh, and begins the, uh, the the process of reorganizing the Byzantine Empire, uh, including uh, establishing uh, administrative control back over Italy. I don't know if they the, this was an ongoing control that they'd had since Justinian or if he actively takes steps to reestablish this. Uh, and begins kind of a slow process of expanding the empire, so uh, uh, rebuilding kind of the, uh, the the old the golden days of the, the Roman Empire, which is every Byzantine emperor's dream. Uh, Maurice, kind of like Justinian, makes actual steps towards that. They want to make Rome great again. Yes, yes, uh, and are, are somewhat more successful at it than uh, than certain other figures we might mention. <laughs> uh, as with uh, uh, as is uh, again not completely uncommon. Uh, he pushes the military a little bit too hard, uh, and uh, I think the introduction to this book says uh, uh, they, they get sick of being stuck on the frontier, uh, and uh, when he get, gives them an extra two or three years of service uh, out in the middle of nowhere in, uh, I guess today would be Eastern Europe uh, at the time, would have been Northern Europe, uh, the army rebels, uh, he is uh, stripped from the throne and executed uh, and replaced with uh, Focus, who... I kind of have vaguely in mind as some kind of theologian also, but don't don't hold me to that. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is also not my strong suit here. Again, there's all sorts of reasons that I, I want to dig more into this. Um, anything you guys want to add about Maurice himself? Uh, nothing that I don't think could factor into our discussion of the specifics of his book later. Yeah, his, his personality certainly comes out in this, or you know, the author's personality uh, certainly comes out in this book. And... Uh, Sometimes it's really compelling, and sometimes I'm like, man, you are just awful. Like, this is <laughs> – like, I'm not signing a contract with you ever. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Eastern Orthodoxy. I mean, the, the church is still at least notionally unified at this point. The Great Schism hasn't happened yet. Right. Or, or the Schism of the 11th century anyway. Um, uh, but there's – I mean, this, this is very much a practical handbook – I mean, there is almost zero consideration of, you know, what we would kind of classically think of as morality. Right. It is, it is strictly about how to get results. And, you know, have, having re- reading this at the same time that I'm talking through sort of the development of things in Western Europe, like chivalry, where under the influence of teachings like the peace of God and the truce of God, you're starting to actually get violence really severely circumscribed (laughs) so that there are and are not permissible things to do in warfare. Uh, This is, you know, you you mentioned Machiavelli. This, this book is again, in it's total attention just to results and, you know, the ends justifying the means. Um, It's like a splash of cold water in the face. It, it, It is, it is 
to me, a, what, what this says to me is that at least in terms of military affairs, this is a really strong continuity with old Rome, right? Where, you know, you did whatever it took to win. Right. I mean, there is the, the sort of obligatory nod to religious stuff in the preface. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And every once in a while, he'll throw in a line about, and of course you should pray, or, you know, Jesus yeah. is still in charge or, or whatever. Make sure the troops shout hallelujah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And, and I think some of that's probably just the nature of the book, right? He is, he's writing a manual, uh, not a theological treatise. But there, there's right. also probably something in the background there. And again, mm-hmm. we, uh, we do an episode on kind of bigger picture Byzantine politics. Uh, the, even if there's a unified church still, uh, the church in Byzantium is a radically different creature than the church in Rome at this point. Uh, yeah. The, the church in the eastern... In, what remains of the Eastern Empire uh, never has the sort of independence and autonomy that the church in Rome has. It's always under the thumb of the emperor, uh, which sometimes is a good thing and sometimes is a bad thing. It just depends on which emperor you're talking about, um, which means things like when, when you know, Constantinople falls, that's, that's devastating for, for uh, Eastern Christianity uh, in a way that theoretically Rome could be conquered by whoever, uh, and the church could just move somewhere else, right? Uh, it, it, it's not as tied to a location and a political structure external to itself. Right. The, well, the, oh, go that ahead. is um, that's exaggerated by the fact that over the course of the um, really the seventh century, uh, the east, the west had one patriarchate. Rome. Right. Uh, the the west had one. The east had four. Uh, well, originally three, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, and then when Constantine, with Constantine, Constantinople becomes a patriarchate, probably, mainly because of proximity to the emperor. But then with the rise of Islam, the other three eastern patriarchates get kind of rolled up. So what had been a, a rather disparate east that was kind of used to the idea that there were multiple um, kind of multiple regions that were in tension and in dialogue and none, none of them particularly dominating Uh, after, after those other three um, get sort of absorbed into the Umayyad or Abbasid caliphates. Um, Constantinople is kind of the only game in town in the east, and so the, and so that 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 becomes much more pronounced as the as as time as time goes. Right, yeah. it's kind of forcibly consolidated. Yeah. Right. Well, and and again, just the the absence of a secular authority yeah. uh, with with the same kind of plenary powers that the Eastern Empire has. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, again, is is going to by definition, leave the church to develop in a different direction. Uh, well, that's that's not what we're talking about today. Uh, we should get into the uh, the strategicon. Uh, David, do you want to uh, jump into the the first uh, first bit there, the uh, the preface? Uh, uh, listener, we have a very unfair division of labor here. I asked David to lead us through the preface, uh, and Jordan to lead us through the other two hundred pages of the book. Uh, so uh, you guys can call me Byzantine for that if you want to. But there you have it. Well, I mean, part of it is I don't know that we intend to have you know a thirty-minute discussion on whether or not to dig pits or to use caltrops in the event of an ambush. <laughs> Just make sure they're strung together so you can pick them up afterward. I'm, yeah, obviously. 
I mean, what's your plan for the event of an ambush, David? I've got mine. I, I kind of like the whole back of, you know, like like have like a, a, a trench dug with wood in it and set fire on it so that they can't chase you when you cross the river. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, the preface. Let word indeed be guided by the old holy trinity, our God and Savior, the steadfast hope and assurance of divine assistance, who directs important and beneficial undertakings to a favorable conclusion. Well aware of our weakness, we have been motivated solely by devotion to the nation. If then what we have written should be deficient, the Holy Trinity will put it in order, turn it to our advantage, and provide guidance for those who may read it. May this come about through the intercession of Our Lady, the Immaculate Ever-Virgin Mother of God, Mary, and of all the saints. For blessed is our God for never-ending ages and of ages. Amen. And That felt like, like, and the book ended. <laughs> <laughs> You get kind of the benediction at the beginning. Um, so beginning in that um, that bringing divine blessing, especially that that kind of that emphasis on, uh, especially the Holy Trinity, that east that Eastern um, uh, resonance of of Nicaea and the following ecumenical councils that makes that makes that that kind of profession. Um, important distinctive uh so that's 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 his that's his opening but the the state of the armed forces has been neglected for a long time and so is and has fallen so completely into oblivion that those who assume command of troops don't understand even the most obvious manners and run into all sorts of difficulties i i think it's interesting that when he when he starts talking about the state of the armed forces, he immediately turns to commanders, not to, you know, the state of our armed forces is terrible because, you know, we just don't have any good recruits <laughs> or we're required, we're, you know, we're relying on conscripts or we're relying on federates or, you know, uh, it, it's instead because our commanders have forgotten the, the old ways, um, he talks about ancient authors and ancient tactical theories. This is uh, something that feels – it feels like it is in stark contrast with the way um, military thinkers operate today, which has – which is all about um, – at least at least in my, in my mind, about arms races, about uh, tactical innovation um, – you know, coming up with with new ways of doing things. Uh, Maurice's uh, his complaint is they've forgotten the old ways of doing it, and the old ways were were better. So, do you, do you think he's uh, sorry if I can? Maybe, I guess maybe you're going to talk about this, but mm -hmm. do you think he's talking about tactics there, or do you think he's talking more generally like discipline and the ability to you know think on your feet and follow orders and and that sort of thing? I think discipline certainly has to do with it. Um, some of the stuff that he says in the section of maxims and uh, in some of the sections talking about the character of a general seems to indicate that he's especially concerned. Like if, if you kind of take what his advice is and then say, what's the photo negative of that? <laughs> right. You see that you see the problem he's trying to address, which seems to be uh, people who are who uh, men who are put into positions of military rank uh, because they are of noble status 
because of of you know the, their their aristocratic station or perhaps their wealth and social prominence they're granted that command you know a military command as a kind of favor from from an emperor um they they're lovers of luxury they are um simultaneously peremptory and strict without actually giving guidance and discipline um so if you put those things together it, it's 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 a general who has no position who 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 hasn't been trained in how to be a good general who doesn't understand uh the nature of a military command um doesn't understand how to use authority and what authority is for and so become and so is both uh too soft and too personally undisciplined, undisciplined to be a successful leader, and and to uh, and and too impatient with the realities of of dealing with you know those that he commands to be to be just or fair. Um, so uh, that that may be also part of a part of a culture shift. That yeah. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm just thinking about, I, I like your, your parallel with, or your comparison with the, the modern, we always need the newest, like the, 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 the most up-to-date tactics. But the other side of that is you need kind of older style, tough people to use those tactics. Yes. Uh, I think about you know, my, my great-grandparents fighting in the trenches in World War One, right? Uh, uh, if... If they had had, you know, F-16s, or I don't, I don't know enough about modern military to, to know what what the right kind of weapons were. You know, they they would have cleaned house. But you put people from our generation back in those trenches, uh, they're going <laughs> to curl up in a ball and die. Right? <laughs> I mean, I would have surrendered when I got trench foot. Yeah. Like like I wouldn't have even needed, you know, mustard gas or you know the first tanks. I would have just been like. Oh, my feet. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean that, that. But he's starting at the the way that the that a that a culture shift has affected uh, the army at the top, right? And and he and so that that's where he begins. Um, devoting yourself to generalship is you know that, that that's the idea. You're you're not just given the rank of general. In the way that you know, aging pop stars and actors can be given the rank of knight, you know, <laughs> in in the modern United Kingdom. Like, you know, just imagine if 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 England was under threat now and and had to be defended by her knights, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, now I want that movie actually. Uh, <laughs> um. But uh, but he also talks about ancient tactical theories. So so there is also a, a battle plan element. Um, right. It is a culture shift. It is a how to, how to, how should a general behave? How to maintain discipline? But it's also how to organize the practical day to day routines of a large military force. How to do that without you know creating in, you know enemies from the people whose land you pass through who might be allies. <laughs> Um, you know how to plan a battle before you have it. That you should plan a battle before you have it. Um, 
which maybe his 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 cushy dilettante generals by appointment were were not used to thinking like that. <laughs> um, the the references to God at the beginning, though, I'm really interested by uh, the about halfway through the preface. He has this paragraph. First, we urge upon the general that his most important concern be the love of God and justice. I'm like, ah, good start, good start. Building on these, he should strive to win the favor of God, without which it is impossible to carry out any plan, however well devised it may seem, or overcome any enemy, however weak he may thought, uh, he may be thought. And and that's, you know, I'm going to say that that's not necessarily untrue, but uh, for all things are ruled by the providence of God, a providence which extends even to the birds and the fish. But it seems to be that his idea of providence is if God likes me, he'll make sure I keep winning, <laughs> which I don't know, feel, feels like a somewhat uh, a, a somewhat light and shallow <laughs> wrestling with that theological topic. Um, so he's got the he's got this tip of the hat to the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. Um, but it first manifests mainly in does God like me or not? And that will determine whether I succeed. But then he has the helmsman. Even the best finds that his skill is useless when the winds are not blowing favorably, but when he has them with him and also puts his skill to use, he has no difficulty in doubling the ship's run. So it is with a good general, armed with the favor of God, and without pausing to rest, employing his tactical and strategical skills, he employs the army entrusted to him with confidence. So it's almost as if providence has gone from being some kind of overarching governing principle of the universe, which, you know, much of much of the biblical meditation on that topic is about the inscrutability of it. But Maurice's providence has been reduced down to God's favor and almost an impersonal kind of force, almost like a like a current or a trajectory that, that like, like the wind, something that you can make use of badly or make use of well, if you are an appropriate, if you're you know a well a well trained helmsman, um, it feels more like the much much later Machiavelli's Prince chapter about overcoming fortune by anticipating okay. the ways that it moves, um, which you know again feels. This may be the most pragmatic treatment of providence I know of <laughs> that's still framed in a theological kind of mode. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I, 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 yeah, that, that was, that was weird to me. I mean, we can, this, this won't post until 2021, certainly, but at the end of 2020, we can understand that a little bit though, right? I mean... The, yeah. the tides are against us, and you can whine and complain and get coronavirus and just get overrun by everything, or you can start making masks and selling them on Etsy, right? I, I mean, those are you can you can flow with the, uh, uh, the 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 assault from Providence here, or you can complain about it and get overrun. Uh, and and there's and and the, the 
my, my impression was part of being a good general is you need to know which way is the best to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's against you, it's against you. You need to acknowledge that. And I say it. If God's against you, God's against you. Uh, you need to acknowledge that. And and if God's on your side, take full advantage of that uh, and uh, and ride that wave uh, the direction you want to go. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a, that, that's, that's, a, that's a more positive spin on it. I, I was just like, you know, is God the wind, though? Like, can you tack? <laughs> no. Like, like where is where are you in your actions in relationship to God's providence? Like, is providence something that is somehow outside of the general and the general's actions so that him tacking is, is by some strange, you know, by some strange... Uh, means outside of that providence. <laughs> You're right, though. I thought Machiavelli when I read that, too. That, that passage on fortune yep. was... Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Though it, it, Machiavelli, I think, is a, is, a, is a good comparison to a lot of what Mari says um, in, in a positive kind of way, basically saying this is the way people work, this is the way situations tend to work, and you need to understand, you know... You, you need to have a plan for when things go sideways, and you need to have drilled that plan. <laughs> you need to have a flag for it. <laughs> uh, anything else out of the preface? Talking about uh, the the general being calm and untroubled, his food simple and plain. Uh, this is something he picks up at, at other times, but the, he's got this vision of the general as someone who is visibly hard at work. Uh, so that the so that his soldiers feel solidarity, not distance. So yeah. that when the when the general gives orders, um, the general's not seen as you know the soft, cushy guy eating peeled grapes in his throne, <laughs> you know, on the back of the elephant or something. Um, but instead, as you know, a leader who understands. Uh, who is able to sympathize with their distresses <laughs> in in some ways, and reminded me a lot of Marcus Aurelius too, uh, in some of some of his comments and his meditations. Yeah. And uh, when yeah that when you when you put it like that, I, I I can't help but think, well, Trump had it right to be you know the picture of him with the taco bowl or surrounded by the double cheeseburgers <laughs> from McDonald's, right? He under he gets it. He understands. <laughs> I mean, he. I think he gets that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, I like. I like you drawing attention to that part because, you know, having studied military history widely, some something that is a a fairly common trait that nevertheless has a lot of wiggle room for diff- like different versions, different iterations of this trait is a kind of studied unflappability. Uh, in great generals, I mean, I think of Wellington kind of casually tossing off orders at Waterloo. Um, you know, Lee and Grant quite famously seeming to be, with very rare exceptions, pretty imperturbable, even in the face of really serious military dilemmas and heavy decisions that they're making. Um, so to, to see it put this way again, it's it's, and I, I like the way you said, you know, uh, making sure that the general is visibly hard at work. Uh, he doesn't really get into the mindset of the troops, although he does occasionally note, if you do this, morale is going to suffer. The soldiers will lose heart. Uh, and keeping that dimension of conflict always in mind, 
uh, make sure, you know, it, it, to put it kind of like in a modern cynical way, paying attention to the optics of how you're leading. Um, not just so that you look good, but because that is going to actually affect the way the soldiers perform in battle. Exactly. It's it's not it's not just some kind of political calculus. Right. It's not how will things look back in Constantinople. It's how does it how does this appear in in the mind and to the heart of the one who I'm going to ask tomorrow to stick his neck out. Right. <laughs> yeah. And because if uh, I mean soldiers, you know, it, it's not just that you know the situation is going to. Let me put it this way. The situation is going to be a little bit different in the Byzantine army for reasons that we will probably get into, right? It's, it's, I, I think it's fair to say the Byzantine government by this point is reasonably dictatorial. Uh, <laughs> the, the soldiers don't have a whole lot of an option in being there, uh, yeah. which is part of what, you know, it resulted in Maurice's overthrow eventually. Um, but just, Practically speaking, in combat, the the officer who loses it, mm-hmm. the soldiers stop following them. Even if they're, they might they might still be the guy giving the orders, but leadership will have devolved onto someone else who can mm-hmm. keep it together. There's a sergeant somewhere who's making it work. Right. Exactly. Uh, I like your point about the uh, not doing the political calculus back in Constantinople when you're making decisions, and I think that's probably a uh, a sign in favor of this actually having been written by the emperor, uh, because mm, yeah. any other general, right? You 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 have to do that. You don't want to be looking like you are doing such an amazing job that people are going to start to transfer their loyalty to you. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. That's dangerous. It's dangerous to be too successful in, as a Roman general because you start I, you start looking imperial flavored. And I assume <laughs> that's still true in the Byzantine Empire. I don't. Again, I'm I'm. Mm. Largely ignorant of, of what goes on uh, back east, but uh, I, I assume that's still the case. I assume that something like Tacitus uh, Agricola is still kind of read as, here's how you do your job well without standing out too much and you know, keep your head. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like the, uh, uh, what, I, what I thought of is kind of the, the most Machiavellian line in it. Uh, in the uh, last paragraph there that on, on uh, page nine, the, Second sentence, uh, opportunity is what cures problems. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, a great line. It is. And uh, it's one of those things where, where you're like, yeah, that's true, uh, except when it's not. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> right up until it isn't. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm not enough of a, a military historian or military anything to know if that holds on the battlefield or not, but it sounds like it might. <laughs> yes. Nice. See, uh, this this line has been attributed to Patton. I don't know for sure that he actually said it or not, because uh, Patton is kind of like you know, the Abraham Lincoln, Benjamin Franklin, or Mark Twain of military quotes. Uh, if you don't know who said it, it was probably Patton. But uh, something that I see reflected in some of what we've been saying here too is you know it's it's better to have a imperfect plan now when you can act on it than a perfect plan when it's too late. Um, and you know seizing the opportunity. When you have the chance to do something about it, I, I think is kind of what he's alluding to here. And it's it's interesting to me that that line comes after that discussion of providence because you know, not to not to reopen that, but the way I kind of took that was that you know God, you know God God is sort of the ground in which all of this happens, 
and what you do with what is presented to you is kind of on you. Um, you know, cause he, he mentions, you know, his, uh, making sure the general has his, where's that line? I don't like this typeface. It's hard for me to find things in it. Uh, yeah, his, his, you know, employing his tactical and strategical skills, right? So, you know, you're going to, in this position as a general, as a stratagos, right? Cause this book isn't really about strategy. It's about being a general, um, the, you know, the strategic on the book of the general, um, you're going to be presented with an opportunity and, what you do with that comes down to your self-discipline, your skill, your calmness under pressure, uh, and the the discipline and the skill that you have imparted to your troops. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know precisely what to do with that because, as uh, as the um, again, may, maybe this reference will be several months out of date by the time this drops. But our City of Man episode about signs, I I always get a little impatient with. Providence discussions because at some point it just starts sort of circling the drain. <laughs> uh, you know, is it, yeah, I think you get where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Well, anything else out of the uh, the preface? Otherwise, uh, we should have uh, Jordan tell us what we need to know about strategy <laughs> and training and uniforms and strategery. It's good stuff. Well, make sure that you have your case for your pennon ready at all times. Because you keep it on your spear until you advance into battle, but once you're within within bow shot, you take it off and put it in the case. Yeah, because <laughs> they right. they just get in the way. Um, yeah, that <laughs> uh, that is one thing I really enjoyed about this. I had never read the Strategicon before, but it, um, you know, I would encourage all those people who keep the Sun Tzu industry in business. Uh, to mm-hmm. drop that and read the Strategicon and said, I really liked its pairing of um you know, kind of high-flown general principle with the nuts and bolts, um, which it's been a while since I've read Sun Tzu, but it's pretty long on principle and theory and doesn't have a lot of the nuts and bolts in it. Um, And I I think pairing those two things so that you can see concrete examples of what Maurice is talking about generally, um, especially... Generally? Yeah, yeah. Especially... uh, Especially um, because one of the things I walked away from with with this book, something that I should always keep in mind, but it's it's so easy to forget, is how much work this is. You know that you have to keep you have to keep track of so much stuff. A, a friend of mine who was a uh, combat engineering officer in the Marine Corps talked about how he like hit his ordinary day in Afghanistan was sitting in his Humvee on three different radios, coordinating like five different things at the same time. You know, and that's that's with like a platoon of combat engineers, much less, you know, a, an army <laughs> of Byzantine cavalry. So, you know, with, with those things in mind, uh, again, the book is a sometimes mind numbing uh, list of, you know, formations and orders and the precise way that the troops should, you know, about face or wheel or, you know, move to the flank or whatever. Um, there, there's all that kind of stuff, which which is interesting and it does um especially since this provided you know kind of charts and layouts of uh the precise formations for different units especially of cavalry which which i'll say more about in just a minute uh can actually does give you something of a visual picture of how this would have looked on the battlefield and that that's an important important thing to note is because this uh warfare in this world is still fairly small and intimate you you can as a general actually find a low rise in the ground 
and see everything that you need to see. Um, and uh, uh, let me let me go ahead and recommend two other books that I thought of multiple times while like reading and preparing for this. Uh, both by the late great Sir John Keegan. Uh, one is The Face of Battle, and the other is uh, The Mask of Command. Uh, and I thought in particular of The Mask of Command in discussing, you know, the character that a general should have. But in The Face of Battle, he, he picks case studies of different battles over the course of history, and he starts with Agincourt, uh, which is, you know, a battle fought on a frontage of a couple of hundred yards. Uh, then he moves to um, where, where does he go from Agincourt to Waterloo, which is fought over several miles, right? So that it, you know, to bring Wellington into it again, he's he's sending dispatch riders left and right constantly, and he has to kind of stay put so he can see some of the battle, but he has to be told about other things, and so time becomes really really crucial there. Uh, and then uh, one of the last case studies is the Somme, which is fought over dozens of miles involving tens of thousands of troops and you know weeks of coordination just to prepare the attack. We're we're dealing with something a lot more like Agincourt, right? Where you actually can uh, you can see the troops and they can see you, uh, which is something that comes in multiple times. Um, so to to break the book down a little bit, uh, you you've got an introduction which is has a lot to do with, you know, these these are some of the subheadings, the training and drilling of the individual soldier armaments of the cavalrymen and the basic equipment to be furnished, uh, the various titles of the officers and soldiers, regulations about military crimes. So you got that recurring theme of discipline, um, military punishments, uh, the orderly way of marching through our own country when there is no hostile activity, uh, just the basics. Uh, so that's an introductory book. Uh, and it also introduces uh, the fact which knowing a lot more about like the Republican and the early Imperial Roman army. I found it really interesting that by this point, talking about this cultural shifts, what we're talking about here is a predominantly cavalry force. Um, this, the, these units are smaller than the Legion and they're a lot more mobile, but of course that brings with it a lot of logistical challenges, right? Looking after uh, not just the food for the infantry, but the you know fodder for the horses and, and what to do with the horses. If you decide to fight dismounted, uh, things like that. Uh, books two through six, um, I've just, you know, in my own notes, cavalry-related material. <laughs> this is uh, different formations that they can take, where exactly to position, you know, uh, the guidons or the banners, uh, where the commander should be in each formation, how to subdivide them into what, what would kind of be the equivalent in our military of, like, squads and platoons and things like that for greater maneuverability, even down to, you know, how far out the horses should be spaced from each other to give them... Mm -hmm room to maneuver, uh, you know, in case there's a battlefield obstacle or somebody who falls off their horse, uh, leaving medics behind to pick up the wounded and the dead and things like that. Uh, how to, you know, basic tactics, basic drills to go through. And he, he repeats, you know, go through these drills over and over and over again so that in combat, this will be second nature, right? Uh, which is the same basic principle of modern day military drill and military training. Uh, and even down to stuff like how best to guard the baggage train, right? Because you're taking all of your stuff with you. There's no trail of trucks reaching back to Constantinople to bring you stuff. You've, you've got to bring it with you, which means that making sure that that is secure is of the utmost importance. Uh, for me, the most interesting, kind of, kind of the guts of the book, especially where we're con considering being a Strategos, right, being a general, uh, come in books seven and eight. Uh, the first, I love the um, 
I love the names of these strategy, the points which the general must consider, which is again basically everything. <laughs> uh, blessing the flags, organizing the squads, uh, squads, you know what to do with enemy prisoners, using speeches to encouraging uh, to encourage the troops, uh, basic maintenance, how to water the horses, uh, you know so you know water the horses downstream of the camp so they don't muddy the water, that kind of stuff. Uh, don't stop to strip the enemy courses during the battle because the enemy will turn on you and kill you. Um, and also, uh, just, just things like that. And then, um, let me see your book eight, uh, general instructions and maxims. And this is a, uh, let me see here, like a 15 page. Uh, let me see how many there are exactly because they're numbered in this edition. We, we are using, by the way, the translation of George Dennis from, uh, University of Pennsylvania Press. Which I think is the only English translation available. I, I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah, book eight is uh, about 101 uh, maxims and kind of like little again, general instructions, general points. Uh, so if you are... 145. Yeah. It's actually two sections. Instructions oh, for the commander yes. and yes, then maxims, right. are se- they're, they're numbered separately. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the uh, yeah, there's there's a break and then he starts the numbering over again. My mistake. Yeah, so you got al- <laughs> uh, yeah, almost 150 little pointers, and uh, this is everything again from practical nuts and bolts stuff down to you know general items of character. So you know, uh, it is dangerous to expand the battle line indefinitely. Uh, let's see. Uh, the general should not go to sleep before reflecting on what he should have done that he might have neglected and on what he has to do the next day, which mm. sounds like me going to sleep every night. Um, when both <laughs> when both sides – here's a good reminder. When both sides are equally well-armed, the better tactician will win. Uh, and We might have something to say about the Byzantines' opponents here in a minute. Uh, a general who loves luxury can destroy the whole army. Mm. Um uh, it is a good idea to maneuver so that the sun, wind, and dust are behind our men and in the face of the enemy. Uh, so, you know, kind of beware the hun and the sun kind of tac- uh, tactics. Uh, the general is at fault if most of the army is destroyed in a single battle. The general who takes nothing for granted is secure in war. Uh, and it comes back over and over again to the general. And one of the things I appreciate about that is its its emphasis on leadership uh, that it comes down to you, right? The buck stops here. Um, there's nobody – Nobody to blame but the general. So so rather than, you know, to, to take it back to our discussion of, um, you know, generalships being kind of a, a reward for aristocrats who need something to do, uh, this job is not a sinecure. It, mm. it is something that you've got to devote serious attention to. And you've got to – if it is not already so formed, you really need to form your character to impart some of that character to imprint that on your on your men. Mm-hmm. Um, so seven and eight are really really interesting. And like I said, if if you're you know a fan of the kind of like general Sun Tzu <laughs> advice on character and leadership, this is probably the guts of the book for you. And I would I would definitely recommend it. Um, books nine and ten are what I've called special scenarios handling ambushes, both you ambushing the enemy and the enemy ambushing you. Uh, advice for sieges. Uh, interestingly, a fairly short chunk of the book. Uh, it, it would seem that most of Byzantine warfare at this point, um, while sieges happen, most of it, most warfare is going to happen in maneuver out in the field looking for the enemy, uh, which is something that will dramatically change, uh, certainly in the West during the Middle Ages, but uh, for the Byzantines as well. Uh, 
for me, one of the most interesting books, uh, in addition to, you know, the, the instructions and maxims is book 11, uh, which I've, you know, is I've described in the, on our outline, uh, ethnographic information about common enemies. Yeah. Uh, and this, this is not just interesting in getting a Byzantine perspective on what the Byzantines enemies looked like and acted like and their particular weaknesses. So you learn, for instance, that <laughs> light haired peoples, you know, various kind of Germanic tribes, they're really, really ferocious, but they don't like getting hurt. Uh, <laughs> and they, they wear out quickly, right? Because yeah. their bodies are soft. And, you know, if you read that in conjunction with something earlier, like Tacitus's Germania, Oh, yeah. Where he he relates that some Germanic tribes, the women do all the work while the warriors lie around eating and scratching themselves. Uh, you can you know there, there's some there's some continuities here. I, I would not press those continuities too far. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so you learn about what what the Franks are like, what the various Slavic peoples are like, uh, what you know that you might call uh Scythians, which is kind of a catch-all term for like Central Asian horse nomads, what the Persians are like. And, um, you know, maybe we'll have more to say about this in just a minute, but that hints at the very problematic geographical situation for the Byzantines. Uh, they are menaced on all fronts by a variety of enemies of widely varying levels of sophistication in the military arts. Uh, somebody who's used to fighting Franks is not going to do well against Persians unless they really keep themselves in in fighting fiddle, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what we'll we'll maybe say more about that in just a minute. Um, I found that a particularly interesting uh, chunk of information. Um, I could probably say more, but I'll, I'll try to wrap it up here. Uh, and interestingly, uh, again, most of the book has to do with what to do with uh, cavalry, uh, how to maneuver them, how to drill them, basic tactics, how to organize them, uh, how to march, how to take care of the horses, etc. Uh, everything you need to know about the infantry is thrown into this kind of grab bag book at the end of book 12. Uh, so you get a number of bits of information about the infantry, uh, as well as things about um, you know laying out camp for the night, uh, the different kinds of Improvised fortifications you can use, like sharpened stakes and trenches and things, uh, caltrops, which we were joking about earlier, uh, and e even advice on how to turn out large units of men in this kind of mass hunt to bring in meat for the camp, which was really weird to me, but also kind of I could kind of see the draw. It sounded kind of, especially if you've been drilling all the time, sounds like a pleasant break for the soldiers. Um, that is my fast and furious um, summary of the entire thing, books one through twelve. Uh, what would y'all add or detract from that? So, one of the as I was reading through this, I, I kept getting the officer ranks and the names of divisions. Just I, I couldn't keep any of that stuff straight. Yeah. Uh, but even though I couldn't keep those terms straight, it was very clear that the reason why he's got all the specificity is because he wants everything to be kept very straight. Yeah. <laughs> right. He's got officers for, you know, it's not just here's the general and here's this big undifferentiated mass of dudes. It's, it's this very carefully, you know, uh, partitioned, um, with officers at all levels who are responsible for different uh, different kinds of uh, 
you know, relaying orders, keeping discipline, all the rest of it. Uh, the use of flags I thought was interesting. Like, like uh, at almost every level, there is a distinctive flag, and that flag serves as a visible center to where that unit is supposed to be. Right. Um, you know, the 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 function of f- flags in battle really helped to to bring to bear uh, what we don't see when we watch a Hollywood movie. Um. No one in that battlefield has access to some kind of swooping sky cam yeah. <laughs> where they can see all the panorama around you. You just see a bunch of dudes. It's just you and just a bunch of other dudes, and the and the harder you fight and the bloodier you get, the more your dudes start to look like their dudes, unless you're clearly marked. And where are my guys? Um, and so you need a tall stick with something shiny on top. <laughs> right so you know the all of the stuff that you know maybe in in later times looks decorative looks fancy um it becomes really really practical in the scrum yeah uh things that i was right reminded of as i was reading uh i thought about sun tzu that that was one another thing that it reminded me of uh you mentioned sun tzu um I've been uh, in a in a, cor- a course I'm teaching. We we were reading through uh, the Romance of Three Kingdoms, uh, which is from the the Warring States period in Chinese history, uh, and very. It's a long book full of really really short action packed chapters, and it's and there's all it's all about ambushes. Um, uh, flogging a dissident soldier after letting him overhear fake battle plans and then letting him escape so that he can defect to the enemy and share false plans. Um, uh, all kinds of, you know, tricks for getting into us, getting into the city that you're besieging or getting out of the city that you're besieging. Uh, a lot of the stuff that he, that, that Maurice is, uh, sort of walking through strategically. Uh, I was, I, I just finished reading this, this long book where those kinds of tactics are, are all employed. So, uh, I guess there is a Sun Tzu, you know, kind of, you know, 10,000 foot level broad principles of Chinese warfare. But there was also a you want to cross a river, dig a trench, fill it with wood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Things like what do you do when you run out of arrows? Well, you get a boat, fill it with hay bales and and take it up river close enough to the enemies that they start shooting it full of arrows and then row it back again. <laughs> and I loved that that very practical, you know, make sure your caltrops are changed together. Level of uh, level level of tactics in this. Um, I, I also thought about uh, Germania Jordan when I was reading chapter eleven. That was probably my favorite. Um, yeah. I really want. I, I'd really wished. Uh, that the translator had rendered light-haired people's blondes 
Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of blonde jokes in here. Um, am- apparently, b- blondes are really easy to ambush. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I thought that was very, very funny. That I- any any Teutonic sorts of people who read Germania and come out of it with the sense of you know the 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 noble barbarism of their Aryan race or whatever, just go read Maurice and feel duly humbled. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely a uh, a good taste of Byzantine chauvinism. Mm-hmm. And yet it does jibe. Let me see where that was again. It does jibe uh, a little bit with that, you know, kind of 19th century, you know, freedom loving. Oh, yeah. Barbarians of the mists of Germany. Where did that go? Well, I mean, uh, the first line. First line, yeah. Yeah. Blondes uh, love the great value of place, great value on freedom. They're yes. bold and undaunted. They just yeah. start crying as soon as you hit them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's, uh, I, I like that perspective because, um, you know, when, when we wrap up here, I will almost certainly um, take our discussion back to a comparison with what is going on in Western Europe at the time, which I know more about. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll come to that point organically. I'll, I'll, I'll let that rely for now. The other thing that I thought about is something that comes much, much before, which is Herodotus mm. uh, and Herodotus's observations about, you know, the various step peoples like, uh, you know, that, that, that are, that are these, these later Scythians, Avars and Turks and whatnot. Um, you know the the use of the false retreat, which right. which which just keeps suckering the Persians and Herodotus, <laughs> um, and, and the Persians themselves having a uh, uh, having a, a it's just fascinating to me to see this text that has Persians and Scythians and Franks and Lombards all in it at the same time because oh, yeah. my with my you know being so focused on Western Europe. I'm like, these are the peoples of the early Middle Ages, and these are the deeply ancient peoples. And to say, yeah, no, 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 no. History is not that neat. <laughs> Definitely not. Good for me. A <laughs> couple of things that I that jumped out at me. Uh, one kind of repeated theme just over and over and over through this, especially in the Maxims, but even in the, uh, the other passages uh, – I wasn't prepared is never a good excuse for a general. Right. Like you, so you, cool. You never get to say that. Yeah. Uh, if you're not prepared, it's your fault. I need uh, to put, even if it's a surprise. I need to put that in my syllabi. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> a general should not have to say, I did not expect it. Uh, you should always expect it. Right? Uh, it's, that's, that's, your, that's your kind of one job, is to be the person who's always expecting it. Um, and then uh, uh, the... The other side of that, uh, so if you call someone or something Byzantine, uh, it's usually not a compliment. <laughs> it's usually, at best, saying it's complicated, right? That, that's kind of the, the best possible spin, uh, usually with the in- implication of needlessly complicated or corruptly complicated or uh, top-heavy bureaucracy full of, you know, 
overweight, greedy eunuchs just living off the the people's tax money, right? And and uh, those are maybe maybe some of those images have kind of left the language as people get more and more historically ignorant. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, I mean, certainly certainly up until. 30 or 40 years ago, if you call someone Byzantine or call a government agency Byzantine, uh, it's a deeply grievous insult. And uh, <laughs> some of that is is maybe backed up by this. Uh, so uh, uh, another repeated theme is uh, whatever it takes to win uh, and uh, in, up to and including lying, breaking treaties uh, or, or point blank setting ambushes for people you just said you would never, ever ambush. Uh, so uh, maximum, uh, maxim or instruction or whatever, 36. Uh, after agreeing upon a treaty or a truce with an enemy, the commander should make sure his camp is more guarded strongly and more closely. Uh, if the enemy chooses to break up, oh, that's not the right one. Um, one of these, uh, which, whichever one it was, I, I don't remember, uh, basically says uh, sign the treaties with the, with the enemy, uh, send the ambassadors on their way, uh, wait until they're almost back to their camp and then kill them. Uh, so that the uh, the enemy will be disheartened by it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember what the number was. I had that marked and then I lost it. Uh, but yeah, so I, I mean, there there is a there is something to this, right? Uh, uh, there there is something to the idea that these these Byzantines really are kind of sneaky and untrustworthy, uh, and uh, yeah, they they will shake your hand and smile at you and. As soon as you turn around, they'll stab you in the back. Uh, and may- maybe this was never followed through with. Uh, again, I, I'm I'm ignorant of my Byzantine history, but in the guidebook for generals, it explicitly says do that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because that is absolutely, you know, spe- speaking of the light-haired peoples, um, 400, almost 500 years after this, they're going to show up in Byzantium. And they're going to meet Alexius Comnenus, and they're going to say, "Hey, we're here to help. You know, we're here. Right. We're here to retake Jerusalem." And Alexius right. Comnenus is going to say, "Oh, great, go ahead, and I'll follow." And he never follows. And so, for the rest of the Crusading period, you know, the Franks and whoever else goes to the Middle East, they are going to look sideways at the Byzantines because the Byzantines make promises they don't follow through on, and the the reputation of the the Crusaders. The, the Crusaders' uh, understanding of the way the Byzantines work is that they will use you. Um, whether that's justified or not, it is it is certainly borne out in the experience of the, the, the knights of the First Crusade. Uh, so may, right. maybe that's some kind of survival from the, this this sort of, uh, again, uber-pragmatic <laughs> strategery. <laughs> is it pragmatic or is it sort of high-handedness, the whole – receive their ambassadors and then as they get close to the camp kill them to discourage the enemy is that some kind of a we don't negotiate with we don't negotiate with barbarians kind of move like we're the romans and you're the you're the nobodies and and how dare you even think that you could engage with it, with in in sort of diplomatic parity with us i i mean he he does say it is for the purposes of deception. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. uh, it's not a. I I don't remember much discussion at all by way of civilized civilized versus barbarian. Yeah, they uh, well they employ federati who are barbarians. Sure. And they they are a useful and respectable component of the of the army, and they kind of have their own thing going on. And, and the strategicon it includes advice on you know how best to use them. 
Uh, and a lot of, you know, something that is also a holdover from previous ages is that, um, I don't know, uh, you know, for sure about Maurice's own time, but one of Justinian's greatest generals was Belisarius, who yeah. was a barbarian. So, I mean, you still, you know, there's, I, I get the feeling that while the Byzantines have a very strong, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this so it doesn't sound modern. They have a very strong self-conception. Um, it, it is nevertheless open, right, to strivers. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you, they're not going to they're not necessarily going to hold being a barbarian against you, especially since most of the people that they fight all the time are barbarians and sometimes they get bested. Uh, and right. a, a wise a wise general is going to respect that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, since we're I know we're coming up on a deadline here, maybe a little past it. Sorry. Sorry about that. Oh, it's um, all good. Let's just quickly uh, run around the circle and uh, each of us will uh, say what kind of our, our big view of the book was. Uh, it sounds like all of us enjoyed it oh, yeah. uh, and at least got something out of it. Um, I'll, I will say this this is uh, one of the things that stood out to me compared to the other stuff we've covered so far. Uh, this is a, a book that's written by and about uh, an active, complex government, right? Even 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 though we're only focusing on one sliver of it, right? With the military, a big sliver, but but just one sliver of it. Uh, this is this is something. This is a government document. Uh, Charlemagne's court. Uh, even though it existed 200 years later, could not have produced something like this. Uh, I, I, I don't even know that if, if Charlemagne's court, people in his court had read this, it would have been much use to him, just because there, you, you have to have that apparatus in place. And uh, uh, this, as far as I know, is, is the only game in town. If, if we're using complex government as a measure of civilization which it has to be a measure, even if it's not the only measure. Uh, uh, and Yeah, so I, I think that that's, uh, that's kind of one of my big takeaways. Uh, I don't have many thoughts on whether you should dig trenches and fill them with firewood and light them on fire. I mean, it sounds kind of fun, maybe, but uh, I, don't have, I don't have much beyond that. Um, I'd be interested to read this. I, I have not read Machiavelli's Art of War, uh, but I feel like that would be a good, comparison, a good parallel piece with this. Mm, yeah. What do you guys have? Well, if Charlemagne had read this book, at the very least, he probably would have done a better job of guarding that that one baggage train that got ambushed up in the Pyrenees. The one, <laughs> right. the one that had Roland in it. Huh. <laughs> Roland might still be with us. Would Would Roland have ever been promoted? <laughs> to, uh... No, no, no. Roland would, you know, nephew or not, Roland would not have been a general. Oliver. It would have been the song of Oliver, and it would have been about how he won. <laughs> because he organized his camp so well. Yeah. Flaming trenches defeated the enemy, right? Uh, I think a, a book like this is absolutely indispensable for story writers, novelists, uh, screenwriters, film directors – Dungeon Masters, anyone who, who is in any way presenting combat in a period like this in which the realities on on the ground of the battlefield are like these realities. Because uh, film just gets it wrong, so egregiously wrong. Um, and in, in just in, in, in things as simple as what are banners for? <laughs> and why is it oh, why is it like 
why is it such an extra cool thing if you can take out the enemy's standard bearer? That's not just it's not just because you got their fancy flag. Right? It's it's because now they don't know where they are. <laughs> they have no center. Um, you, you know, so, so th- I, that, that was, that was one of my big takeaways as I was, as I was reading this is how useful this would be for someone, uh, for whom the realities of warfare, um, in, in times and places like Maurice is talking about, um, just how useful it is as a, as a guide to, to those realities. I've never read anything like it. Except, you know, Romance of Three Kingdoms and then Sun Tzu. <laughs> right, which, which this isn't exactly like Sun Tzu, right? Like Jordan pointed out, this is so no. so much more practical. Mm-hmm. Some some of the maxims verge on Sun Tzu-ness, but like this is this is yeah, this is so much more boots on the ground. I love yeah. it. Right. Uh, Jordan, what do you got? Uh, yeah, I'll second what David said about anybody. I mean, wanting to imagine what it was like, which is the, the hardest thing you can do in studying history. Uh, the hardest thing you can do as a historian trying to convey history to people is trying to give people some sort of sense of living through, you know, living throughness, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the Strategicon does a really excellent job, again, of showing you the business of running an army um, with all, again, of the the – even down to you know making sure your guys have their their weapons polished you know just just stuff like that I mean just all of that as I keep saying nuts and bolts stuff uh, I I write fiction if I <laughs> knew enough about Byzantium to want to write a novel set there this this would be a godsend because as I was reading it I was certainly imagining what it was like uh, and and Maurice uh, in the both in the, again the the principles that he gives you, which gives you some kind of interiority, some kind of glimpse of the Byzantine mind, uh, as well as again that nuts and bolts stuff, you really get a good glimpse of life in a Byzantine army. What I wonder is that you know any soldier could tell you that combat doesn't always follow the handbook. Uh, mm-hmm. at, at some point, there there are things you can ignore, things that you maybe should ignore. I would be really interested if it you know. It, it just it just piques my curiosity to know what what parts of the Strategicon maybe got dropped, you know, when when the going really got hard, uh, things like that. Um, I'll, I'll reiterate too in kind of my response and reflection on it, um, what what the Strategicon can kind of tell you about uh, the Byzantine government, uh, its culture, which I've already alluded to a little bit. Uh, again, that kind of what I wrote in our outline is national identity, but again, that that smacks of the 19th century to me. Uh, again, kind of a self-conception. Um, uh, there is a there is a Byzantineness that might sometimes be called Roman, might sometimes be called Greek, uh, but it is not it is not rooted necessarily in a, a you know genetic or ethnic identity. It's kind of a state of mind. Uh, but also. Um, their geographic position. Again, he, Maurice is talking about fighting uh, the Avars who are in, you know, what is more or less like Croatia. Um, talking about fighting the Slavs in Bulgaria. Talking about fighting the the Persians in what is nowadays Syria, which which has always, always, always been a really nigh indefensible 
porous frontier, right? Crassus died out there. <laughs> um, that was his fault, right? Um, and uh, I'm, I would love to know what Maurice thought of Crassus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, he was not prepared, and that was no excuse. Um, and also, in our, I, I think there's even an allusion uh, to the um, uh, Scythians or, or a, a group of Scythians coming in through Armenia, right? Uh, this is a this is a the Byzantines are like the, like the Germans in this regard. Every direction they turn, there are people they might have to fight, uh, and so they have to be endlessly adaptable. And I think adaptability is another thing that you take away uh, from this. But uh, with all that in mind, um, two things: the Byzantines survive. Uh, they survive for a thousand years, uh, and I, I think the mindset exemplified by the strategic con is part of that. Um, again, they get attacked. Over and over and over again, and, and you know this this book was written before the Muslims rise in Arabia. Uh, it's written before the Vikings start coming down the Volga into the Black Sea and and, and those regions. You know, we, we, the Byzantines of Maurice's day haven't even seen half of the serious threats that they will eventually face, and yet they weathered most of those storms until, of course, 1453. Um, and part of that as well, and, and um, Coyle, I think you alluded to this a minute ago, and it, it is certainly evident from the book. Uh, I think modern military people could get a lot out of this. Um, and as Coyle, I, I like the way you framed that, talking about whether Constantine's court could get a hold of a copy. Uh, it's not even clear if it would be useful to them. Uh, the Strategicon is – the advice that it contains is predicated on a very – top-down, centralized, authoritarian regime that can command people to do things. Uh, if you took a Frankish warrior and tried to beat him for stopping to loot a, uh, a, a body <laughs> on the battlefield, yeah, it would not go well for you, right? This, you know, the, um, the, these are this book is worlds apart. From what is going on in Western civil, you know, Western Western Europe at the time, mm-hmm. and th- those hint at those big big cultural differences. And I, I'm I'm struck by the fact that this this book could be so applicable. Uh, I think Dennis mentions in his own introduction that uh, a professor at West Point originally worked on a translation but didn't complete it complete it, like he wanted to provide it for his cadets. Um, what that maybe says about our government, <laughs> uh, again, in in what it takes. For modern warfare, uh, as opposed to the more um, free tribal warfare of the barbarians to the west, is uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I have any judgments to make there, but I think it's an interesting contrast. Yeah, uh, that was interesting. And this is a total side note to that. Uh, that that bit about the professor at West Point. There's the, like this weird cottage industry of bored government officials <laughs> using their spare time to translate ancient works. Yes. That I would imagine that's now mostly gone, just because no one learns Greek or Latin anymore. But uh, uh, in my undergrad, there was a room entirely dedicated to this guy who was a judge, either in the early statehood in Wyoming or when it was a territory. I don't remember which, but he basically had nothing to do. So he translated uh, the Theodosian Code and the Justinian Code and was working on these other texts uh, when he died and left all of his stuff to the university. Wow. Uh, and and they've they've been kind of slowly collecting that kind of thing. So there's no real rhyme or reason to the stuff in the room, other than <laughs> it's these government officials who are translating. There's a paper to be written there. Interesting. Uh, well, let me recommend. This is totally off topic, but on that point, 
there are still people who do that. There is a former uh, – what was his title? He was the guy who ran the Social Social Security Administration. Um, he goes by the – Commissar? Yeah, yeah. Comrade? Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, the, yeah. Uh, the, the people's administrator of blah, blah. Uh, he goes by the pen name A.M. Juster, which is some kind of anagram of his actual name. Uh, but he writes kind of formal formalist poetry. You know, so he's still actually writing quatrains, you know, and, and, and sonnets and, and especially epigrams. But he has translated a whole bunch of ancient stuff. Uh, I know some Greek and Roman uh, stuff, but I, uh, one of his more high profile books recently was a translation of the Latin riddles of St. Aldhelm. Nice. Uh, yeah. He, and he writes his own poetry, too, and it tends to be really, really acerbic and entertaining. Um and uh, definitely inflected by his life and bureaucracy. So that is not a tradition that's gone away. Not totally anyway. I'm uh, I'm glad that tradition hasn't vanished. Uh, even if I've never heard of the poetry of Saint, whoever it was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For a second, I thought you were being sarcastic. Like his most well-known, I'm like, really? I, uh, well-known is a relative term. <laughs> right, right. In the circles of people who know such things. Well, I mean, Chaucer translates Boethius. And Boethius yeah. translates, like, everything. <laughs> so, board government officials. Mm-hmm. A great national uh, resource. We should leave things there. Uh, sorry again for running a little bit over, guys. Oh, it's all good. But uh, that's a good place to stop. Uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in, and thank you guys again for, for taking time to come on the show. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast, or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. Is there not a white night upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I shout out for a hero till the end of the night. I pray he behave, wing it of he and newly returned from the fire. With a wit that will thrill and excite, thrill and excite.